are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hit Play, Not Pause is proud to be sponsored by Noon Hydration in 2021. I have been a huge fan of Noon for well over a decade. They have products for immunity, recovery, getting a good night's rest, and I absolutely swear by their Podium series, which include branched-chain amino acids that are super important for women during and after menopause. So show your support and head over to noonlife.com. That's noon, N-U-U-N, life, one word. And use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE, again, one word, with a capital F and a capital M, for 30%, yes, 30% off of all of Noon's amazing products. Again, noonlife.com, use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE, with a capital F and a capital M, and get 30% off of anything you want. Check it out. Hello, strong, feisty women. So before we get to this week's show, I just have a couple of notes. Last week's show with Gail Bernhardt generated a lot of discussion, and I just wanted to make a couple of clarifications. The show was named after Gail's book, Become a Fat Burning Machine. Some people blanched at that term because of the implications like, oh, we're going to get you ripped and shredded. And I actually never talk like that, so that's not what I meant. It was really more about energy usage and exercise. So if if you thought that too, I apologize. That was not my that was not my intent. Um, also, though Gail herself has more than thirty years of elite coaching experience, and her book was referenced and sourced and reviewed uh, by an exercise scientist, she herself is not a registered dietitian. So the lines do get blurry when you have non-dietitians talking about nutrition, and I got some critiques on that, and I appreciate them, and that's definitely something that I will be sensitive to going forward. Okay, so I am super excited to bring you this week's guest, the sleep scientist, Dr. Sophie Bostock. Sophie considers herself a sleep evangelist, And I got to tell you, I have been hounding this woman since I started the podcast because everybody wants to know about sleep, 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 sleep. And I have, I've interviewed many people about sleep over the years and I contacted them and I reached out and then I found Sophie and I was like, I want this woman. I want this woman. I saw her do a TED talk and it was amazing. And she was like, oh, I love your podcast. Thank you. I'm very busy. I'm very busy. And I just kept knocking on the door. And of course, finally, she said yes. I'm very psyched she did. So she is. Uh, she herself has spent five years working on an award-winning digital sleep improvement program called Sleepio, and she has published research in collaboration with the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute in Oxford and other international researchers that show the impacts of better sleep on mental health and performance. Importantly, we also talk a lot about how to get that better sleep, especially now in menopause, when your hormones are swinging a wrecking ball into your sleep architecture, and it feels like maybe you'll never sleep through the night again. You will, trust me. When Sophie herself is not sleeping, eating, rowing, climbing, swimming, windsurfing, she is super active too, which is awesome. She provides keynotes 
conference talks and coaches, corporations, and individuals on how to improve their sleep patterns to boost their well-being and performance. You can learn all about her work at thesleepscientist.com. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. And if you do enjoy the show, kindly share it on your socials, tell a friend, give it a little heart or rating wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us keep on keeping on. And I really, really appreciate it. Okay, enough of me. On with the show. So I appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us today. And I thought I sent you this meme that was very popular on our social channels. And I thought I would just start with that because it is literally the thing that I hear from women so often. And that I myself, when I was in perimenopause, it's not that way now, experienced so, so often. So it's like, it's your nighttime routine. You turn off your screens one hour before bed, wind down with a gentle stretch and meditation, fall asleep to soothing ocean sounds, spend between 2 and 4 a.m. thinking about everything that can go catastrophically wrong. Like That was sort of my, <laughs> my routine. And I was just like, what is going on? Do we have any insights can you solve this for us i'm expecting you you're going to solve this for us right okay, it's, probably, it's probably not a one word answer but I, I would say that of course this is incredibly common and uh, sleep problems become more common during menopause but i actually hear exactly the same thing from young men from young women from older men and especially now so obviously we're recording this in the context of coronavirus and it's very well known it's been widely reported that sleep problems have become so much more prevalent in response to the huge amounts of stress and uncertainty that people are under. So you've kind of got to accept that, yes, um, menopause, and we'll talk about the hormones can have an impact and some of the symptoms can have an impact on sleep, but also the wider context of what is going on in your life. And around menopause, there is likely to be a lot of stuff going on. That is a fact. Know, <laughs> whether it's teenage kids or marital issues or just changes mm. with your body, um, financial instability, like there's right. so much that can influence sleep. So it is a complex picture, um, but it's a positive picture in that there is a huge amount that we can do to improve sleep. So it's it's okay. far from hopeless. Excellent. So where sh where shall we start in that? What is the best way to to bring women up to speed on on what this looks like and and why this is happening? Like why is stress so disruptive? Like you know, even if they're not aware of it, like why at two a.m. Like why? <laughs> I think probably the easiest way to think about uh, what controls your sleep and how to improve it is if you know, if you understand what I call the three main systems which really influence the timing of your sleep. So if we start with that and then we can kind of delve into how each of those can go wrong and then how we can put them right again. Perfect. So <laughs> the first one is your circadian rhythm, your internal okay. body clock. And most people have heard of the body clock and there's this kind of idea that you've got this central clock in your brain but we actually know now know that there are clocks in every single cell in your body you know your internal rhythm mm. to be active and then to have a period of recovery this is hardwired into your dna and many of us try and fight it by uh, burning the midnight oil and sort of resisting this idea that actually we should, we, we are pre-programmed to be more active during daylight hours and mm -hmm. to rest 
rest and recover at night. So the reason that we have, one of the reasons we have all these clocks is because it's it's our internal logistics function. It means that your body is working efficiently if it knows that, okay, we've we've evolved to be very mobile during the day. So we're going to have more uh, glucose available. We're going to have higher blood pressure, higher body temperature, and so on. And whereas at night, and you will know from doing 24-hour cycling events, we are less well adapted <laughs> <Much> for less <laughs> optimum, optimum cognitive and physical performance overnight. So, yes. so if we are sympathetic so to our circadian rhythms, we're going to be waking up at the same time every day. That helps to anchor our clocks. And we're also going to be using the signals that our clocks rely on to tell it that it's daytime. So the major one of those is light. We're going to be kind of quite conscious and deliberate about our exposure to light, particularly outside light. Uh, food is another one. So, you know, eating during daylight hours and not eating late at night. Um, movement. And I know this is a very active audience. And mm-hmm, movement mm-hmm. is one of those things that signals the clock that it's uh, it's daytime and it's time to be alert. So late night workouts are definitely going to interfere with your sleep. Um, and then the last one, particularly relevant for this audience is temperature. So if you, uh, under normal circumstances, your body needs to cool by a couple of degrees Fahrenheit to get into a deep sleep. So anybody who's experienced temperature fluctuations, uh, night sweats, hot flushes, is going to know that it becomes much harder to fall into a deep sleep. So that's kind of, that gives us inkling. That's that's system one. Um, Do you want to talk about that or should we go on to system two and I'll paint the whole picture? What do you think makes the most sense? I think it might, I'm tempted to do either because I have questions right away about some of this. Like I've heard, (laughs) it's funny because one of the things that I get a lot now is like marketers are sending me all these bath bombs, you know, like it's got CBD, it's got melatonin. Right. But my idea is that it's actually the warm bath and not that bomb that is helping people go to sleep because your temperature rises and plummets, right? Like, isn't that, yeah. Yep. That's a really good point. And I think, yeah, it's worth talking a little bit more about temperature in terms of the circadian rhythm, because there was a study which reviewed several different studies, which (laughs) looked at what they called... um, passive water body heating which basically means Mm -hmm. having a bath or a foot bath or even for some people using like a hot Mm. water bottle and it's been shown to help people fall asleep but it doesn't seem to fit with the logic around surely we want our body to cool but what actually happens when you step into a warm bath and it's got to be tepid not boiling hot you don't want to go in the sauna or the hot spa bath before bed But if a warm bath, it means that the temperature of your skin starts to increase and the reaction of your circulation is to send more blood flow to the extremities. And so it actually helps to cool you down. So your core body temperature, when you're snuggled up in a little blanket, actually your core body temperature can Because that's what happens during exercise. Your body is shuttling blood out to your skin to cool cool you down, to off. Yeah, you're trying to cool down. Yeah. So, so that body cooling can help with sleep. Um, so I think um, as for the, the bath bombs, uh, definitely I'd stick to the bath. I think on the what they contain, um, we can go into <laughs> different supplements right. and things later. But um, I, th- I think a more reliable effect of the bath probably than right. what you're putting in it. Okay, so let's move on to the next stage of sleep because then we might just have more global questions. Okay. Oh, the next stage of like what you're yep. talking about. So we'll talk we, about sleep stages we, too, I'm sure, but... How it controls. Okay, so we've got our circadian rhythm. And that 
You can almost think about that as the alerting signal that keeps you awake during the daylight hours. Then to almost compensate for that, the brain's got this safety mechanism because if you just listened to the circadian rhythm and you stood on a treadmill all day and you ate and you had bright lights, again, I'm thinking about 24-hour cycling or something, you can trick the body into staying awake. But at some point, it is going to crash because your brain has the buildup of this substance called adenosine, which makes you drowsy. And the That's longer you works. have... Exactly. <laughs> the longer you've been awake, the mm. more of this adenosine adenosine you have building up and so after about 16 17 hours awake your alertness starts to drop and after 24 hours awake uh, you know your alertness and your cognitive function is similar to having had a couple of alcoholic drinks and that's can you tell people what adenosine is just so for reference it's it's effectively a neurotransmitter that just builds up the more activity that you've done so if you're very physically active you'll probably build up a bit more adenosine and then it gets broken down while you sleep so even uh, a quick nap quick power nap helps to kind of pep up your levels of alertness because it's helping to decrease the adenosine and as you mentioned the the, uh, most popular way to mask the effects of sleep pressure is to use caffeine and what caffeine does is it doesn't get rid of adenosine it just masks the fact that it's around so it sits in front of the adenosine receptors and fools the brain into thinking that it's not tired yeah it's sort of saying hey 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 nothing to see here (laughs) but the adenosine is building up in the background so when the caffeine degrades you can get hit by this wave of adenosine that's been building up in the background and that's your caffeine crash Interesting. I'm a big fan of the espresso nap. So I take oh, yep. like, uh, yes, okay. So like oh. at maybe two o'clock in the afternoon, especially if I've, my head is tired, I will have a shot of espresso and nap for 20 minutes and I'm, it's like magic. So what happens? Perfect. So so we've got a, a nappuccino or the espresso yeah. nap. Um, <laughs> I like that. Is... Nappuccino. I never called it that. <laughs> so the idea there is that it takes about 30 minutes for the effects of caffeine to really kick in. And your ideal sort of short sleep to get into the lighter stages of sleep without going into deep sleep is about 20 minutes. So if you drink your coffee and you're able to just close your eyes and have a little rest, then you're going to be up in 30 minutes feeling a bit more alert interesting okay so okay so so we've got circadian rhythm we've got sleep pressure so um the the really important thing about sleep pressure which we'll come back to is that if you try and fall asleep when you have not built up sufficient sleep pressure you're gonna find it really difficult or if you've had a really long nap in the afternoon and so you have reduced your sleep pressure you're gonna find it much harder to sleep at night and I think why wouldn't you have sleep pressure at the end of a long day like why wouldn't you have built up like if you've got to if you go to the I mean why wouldn't if it builds up naturally what would stop it from building up That uh, neatly brings us onto the third sleep system, (laughs) (laughs) which is the stress system. So Uh. most sleep scientists will just talk about one and two, but they kind of neglect the psychological aspect, which of course has a biological aspect as well. Um, But if you think about, from an evolutionary perspective, if you simply at some point had to crash because you were super, super tired, but you happened to be surrounded by a pride of lions, this is 
is not going to be good for your survival. So right. it means that our response to danger and stress, or perhaps being 23 hours through that 24-hour race, is that we drive up adrenaline and cortisol, which effectively override the other two systems and they can do that kind of temporarily mm. and what it does it activates your you know your heart rate breathing rate kind of fires you up you've got more glucose in the bloodstream full of energy which is useful if you are running away from a threat but utterly unhelpful if actually the thing that has stressed you out is something that you're just thinking about in your mind rather than an actual physical stressor what I'm hearing is that menopause is a predator <laughs> because, because when you go into that perimenopause and your hormones, yeah. estrogen and progesterone are doing that dance and like you're estrogen dominant and things are not as they should be, you can have all that high cortisol that you don't normally have. Absolutely. So we know that at any time of life where you have elevated cortisol levels, you tend to see more sleep disruption. And it's interesting because... Is it down to the, the sort of the stress of the elevated cortisol or is it down to the disruption of the actual sort of estrogen and progesterone? We don't understand a huge amount. What we do know is that around the times in a woman's life where their sex hormones are all over the place or around pregnancy, when estrogen, progesterone, you know, they can lift up by uh, 60 times, even 50 or 60 times, and then sleep goes haywire. Um, actually, even before that, around puberty, uh, females are twice as likely to develop sleep problems than boys of the same age when they've gone that. through puberty. Makes sense. And, and it's, yeah, it seems that we have a much greater sensitivity and we haven't mentioned it yet. But yeah, sleep is more of a problem typically for women than for men. We know that uh, rates of insomnia for women are at least 40% higher than they are for men. Even probably when you take out these impacts of, of sex hormone changes, we seem to be a bit more vulnerable uh, to the effects hmm. of uh, to experiencing poor sleep. So um, the interesting thing about menopause is the stressor, the change in hormones, or is it also, and it's probably both, the fact that you're starting to worry about these changes that are going on? What is happening right. to your body? Um, mm -hmm. Now, uh, my background, I did my PhD in a field called psychobiology, which looks at the impact of stress on our biology. And so we used to do studies where we would put people in a stressful situation and we would measure how much their cortisol went up. And what all of these studies found is that situations where you are out of control in a context which is an environment that you cannot control, which are unpredictable similarly, or even which are new, where you don't have a mental map of what is going to happen next, or things where there are threats to your status. Now that could be threats to your safety, but also your status in your community. So I'm thinking oh about, God, you know, all the athletes that listen to this and you, you suddenly think, oh my gosh, you know, am I still gonna be able to compete at this level? Or even for parents, you know, it, are my kids doing what I ought to do? Am I a good enough right. parent? All those sorts of thoughts can actually spike a cortisol stress response. Even if so, you're not aware of it, right? Right? Even if like, you're not consciously thinking, is this the end of my athletic career? Like all those nagging little voices are yeah. 
working, right? Under doing something to your biology. And here's the painful irony is the fact that sleep deprivation further makes you more sensitive to stress. So yeah, we know sure. that after a night without sleep, your amygdala, which switches on that fight or flight stress response, is 60% more sensitive to threat. Your anxiety levels will lift up 30% after a night without sleep. So your whole perception of your world is clouded by sleep deprivation. Well, that sounds like it really set up a vicious cycle, though. <laughs> it's right? so 100%. <laughs> and and we're, you know, we haven't even talked about the other impacts of sleep loss on some of the same symptoms that menopause can affect. So we know if you're not sleeping well that your memory goes down drain down the drain a little bit because sleep is so important for consolidating memories and freeing right. up the capacity to learn. Um, we also know that lack of sleep interferes with temperature regulation which obviously is oh an issue also in menopause. Uh, we know that lack of sleep is involved in increased inflammation and perception of pain. So any of those aches and pains that are kind of coming along as well because of hormonal changes are probably going to get aggravated. Um, lack of sex drive, that's going to just compound issues that are going on because of hormonal changes. So exactly as you said, a lot of women find themselves in this really negative cycle. And in a way, it doesn't matter what came first. Was it the sleep problems, the menopause, but the two can amplify each other. Wow. Okay, I feel like I've so painted how, a really negative picture, but I am well, honestly going to come on to the I mean, I, I, I'm still, I'm, it's driven home the point, though, very clearly, like what, why you're not sleeping really great. Before we get into um, some, some of that, I want to, I wanted to just make a distinction, if there, if there is one, yeah. between what the mechanisms behind it being difficult to fall asleep because a lot of women actually do fall asleep okay like their latency is not bad but yeah. and that waking up in the middle of the night like is, are there two different things going on there it's, it's hard to tell, different for different individuals, but if we come back to the three systems, the circadian rhythm, sleep pressure, and stress, I mean, if you get to the point where your sleep pressure has built up so that it's really high, you're going to fall asleep, whatever, right. even right. though there's a certain level of underlying stress. Um, and even though perhaps your signals from your circadian system, um, perhaps it's, it's the other way around. So if you fall asleep very easily, it could be that you're very sleep deprived. It could also right. be that that's you, why like falling asleep in 30 yeah. seconds is not necessarily not necessarily a good sign thing. that you're yeah right. but it might be that you have a very strong circadian rhythm which is really good that's a positive generally speaking um so you're managing to fall asleep but yeah if you've got those underlying levels of stress which is reducing the depth of your sleep you're going to be more likely to wake up later Gotcha. If you're struggling to fall asleep, it might well be that perhaps you've uh, your, your circadian rhythm needs a little bit of help. So, you know, turning down the light, eating a bit earlier on in the evening, making sure you've allowed time to wind down and that you have built up necessary sleep pressure. So one of the most powerful things that you can do to actually improve the depth of your sleep through the night is sometimes to actually push your bedtime back. So if you're not falling asleep easily, you actually push your bedtime back until you're really genuinely tired. And we'll come on to sort of a bit more about how to do that. Okay, so so let's let's help now that we've painted all this picture and, and talked about like all the things that um, go into a good night's sleep or lack thereof and stress seems to be really, really high on the list. Like it, 
if I were to come into you and say exactly what we started with that with that meme, where do you start with me? Honestly, the simplest way to start is to wake up at the same time every single morning. And this is not as easy as it sounds, because actually if you've had a terrible night's sleep, it's really hard to drag yourself out of bed at the same time. But we know that that's one of the core things that you can do to strengthen your circadian rhythm. One of the things that happens as you get older is that you naturally start to produce a bit less melatonin. Now, lots of people will have heard of melatonin. It's the hormone that cues the brain that it's time for sleep. And it's usually produced two hours before bed or sort of 90 minutes. And if you have very haphazard sleep and wake times, the body has huge problems anticipating when your bedtime is going to be. But if you at least wake up at the same time every morning, you're really helping your circadian rhythm to be able to predict when it's going to be bedtime. So you're much more likely to get a good surge of cortisol first thing in the morning, which we all have to help us wake up, get out of bed, feel alert, and also this surge of melatonin before bed. So the first thing to do, the first kind of sleep hygiene ingredient is really to get out of bed at the same time every day okay great so okay do that <laughs> tick <Yep>. tick. <laughs> tick and then uh, some of those other circadian aspects so um light super important now i know we're talking to a very active audience so they probably do a lot of movement but I don't know what it's like in Canada. In the UK, we've been told recently that, you know, we should only leave the house for essential purposes, that we're only allowed to exercise once outdoors. And so yeah. people are being forced inside a lot more. In the US and the UK, or in the Canada, we're, we're not as, we are not as locked down as, 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 as you are. Uh, for better or for worse, we won't even get into that. But yeah, we are, we can go out and get... Well, this is this is very good news. Um, yeah. What we do know is that the intensity of light when you go outside is thousands of times apart from what you get inside. So we know that people who, for whatever reason, aren't able to get outside very much are terrible problems in um, uh, elderly care homes, for example, where actually people are kept inside too much and they don't have that cue from the sun, which is saying, "Yep, it's wake up time. It's it's time to kind of get going." The more light you're exposed to in the in the morning and in the daylight hours, the less sensitive you are to light at night, and the less Do windows it count? is. Yeah, windows do count. Like it's I'm sitting by this lovely window and the snow is reflecting all the light. In that, me. Is, like, that is exactly where you want to be. I do have a prop, which is terrible for a podcast, but you can see it. Oh, this okay. is a little uh, lux meter, which measures light intensity. Oh, um, and okay. so you switch it on and the light kind of gets uh, sucked in. And I can see in the middle of my living room, it's 128 lux. Now it looks bright enough, but actually the minimum recommended for reading is 500 lux. Now, if I literally just go six feet to the side and go and I sit by the window, I get about a thousand lux. If I go outside, I'm going to get two, three, four thousand lux on a cloudy day, but I might get as much as a hundred thousand lux on a really sunny, bright, sunny kind of midday. So the differential in light intensity is much greater than our eyes are kind of sensitive to, but our circadian body clocks are incredibly sensitive to those differentials in light intensity. So the is more- Is there a minimum amount of exposure? That's a really good question. 
I think it's just the more the better during daylight hours. We know one of the yeah. um, most simple ways people often ask me, how can you switch your circadian rhythm? So if you're a night owl and you want to become an early bird, you know, mm-hmm. what can you do to shift this rhythm around? And other than getting older, because often our, our chronotype, that tendency tends to shift anyway with right. age. But there were some studies that came out recently that suggested the best thing you can do is to go camping. You can just ditch electric lights in the evening, mm-hmm. 100%. And then if you just go outside and rely on the sun's cues, then probably right. you'll get back more into the rhythm of an early bird. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and well, we, that's we can cool. also kind of supplement that. If you don't feel like going camping for a couple of weeks, <laughs> um, then you can just simply wake up at the same time. You can eat breakfast within an hour of waking up. You can try and confine your exercise to sort of morning hours. That will help to kind of shift the body clock forward. And again, not eating after like 7 p.m. at night. That's going to help to shift your body clock forwards. Excellent. So that's that's taking care of the circadian piece, right? Yep. Yep, okay. that's a pretty pretty good way of getting your body clock on track. Then with your sleep pressure, as we talked about, um, it really is just not going to bed too early. Um, one of the worst things that you can do as someone who doesn't sleep well is to try and compensate for it by going to bed early or having naps during the day. And that mm. at least, the naps can screw with your sleep pressure. So. Personally, I think that a short nap in uh, the early afternoon hours is can be really helpful. I mean, some people mm-hmm. are nappers, some people aren't. If you're not mm-hmm. able to nap, I'd actually still just say taking 10 or 15 minutes time out. Just, right, just to like you know, rest your just head. Rest. rest your eyes, as my yeah. nanny used to say. I'm just going to rest <laughs> <Yeah>. my eyes. <laughs> but the lovely thing about that is that you're actually training the brain that it's okay not to do anything. I think right, for a right. lot of women, they are running around at 300 miles an hour all day. And when they get into bed, it's the first opportunity that the brain has to kind of catch up and process all this stuff that's happening and I've actually found with people that I work with one of the simplest things I do is to say right I want you to block out 15 minutes of your day put it in your calendar where you are going to do nothing I don't care if you nap but it's just to train your brain that it's okay to not be doing but just to be being is that why meditation is successful yes so if we I mean the the gr- meditation is fantastic because it helps to train you not to get lost in these sort of negative thought patterns. The whole idea is really learning to be curious about your thoughts and feelings without kind of hanging on to them, whether they're good or bad, but just sort of learning to, to let them go. And sometimes people who aren't sleeping well are the worst when it comes to meditation they find it really hard and it's not at all unusual if you have insomnia and you know probably everyone's told you oh have you tried that mindfulness thing and you sit down and you try it and there's somebody's (laughs) voice saying just let it go and it's the last thing in the world that you want to do and there was some research that came out recently that showed that poor sleepers are less naturally mindful that they find it much harder to meditate so it's almost like there's a stage before that before you actually get into a regular meditation practice where you just okay. learn to slow down a little bit and right. just just take some breaths every now and then. And then over time, I think building up a meditation practice is a really healthy thing when it comes to your sleep. Excellent, excellent. So that's anything else with the sleep pressure? Uh, well, caffeine, you know, caffeine is not, um, 
There's a half-life to it that people should be aware of, right? Yeah, so it can vary a lot. Most people will quote kind of five to six hours, but it can actually be anything between three and 11 hours. We've all got a very different um, tolerance when it comes to metabolizing. I can tell you that. (laughs) And it tends to be that the more that you've had, the more tolerance you've built up to it. And, uh, but also the more you are dependent on it. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. don't realize about that dependent aspect. And one of my favorite studies that I talk about is where they they took some uh, heavy caffeine drinkers and some light caffeine drinkers who had an occasional cup sort of now and then versus the heavy ones who had kind of six cups a day. And they invited them into the laboratory at 10.30 in the morning. And they just said, don't have any caffeine before you come in. And the heavy drinkers, when they assessed their alertness, you know, it was really pretty low, significantly lower until they gave them a cup of coffee. And then it had its magical effects and it pet mm-hmm. them up. And then, you know, they felt pretty good. But when they looked at the light caffeine drinkers, when they came into the lab at 1030, they were already at that level. They right. weren't, they right. weren't low, you know, they and actually the caffeine, all it was doing it was kind of bringing those dependent coffee drinkers up to the same baseline level. So you've got to watch whether you're actually using it strategically which I think is is great, you know, if you need to pep up your alertness levels, like you said, a, a nappuccino every now and again, <laughs> particularly if you're driving or you've got an right. event, but not routinely using it day in, day out, you know, just switch really? it out for... You're telling for... people not to use, co- like have a cup of coffee every day? <laughs> no, no, I'm saying don't use it routinely, as in every time that you want a cup of coffee, if you make decaf your default and just say, okay, but when I really need it, I'm going to use caffeine, okay. it's going to be more effective than actually always using caffeine. Gotcha. The other thing is gotcha. because of this long half-life, so we know that caffeine a quarter of it is still going to be in your bloodstream probably uh, 12 hours later Mm. and so it can have quite subtle effects on your sleep quality so um i should explain you know sleep quality we usually look at the time that you spend in different sleep stages Um, yeah i know you you will come on to that but what caffeine can do is disrupt the time you're spending in deeper sleep and make you more likely to wake up so even if the even if you're still able to fall asleep, it could still be that it's disrupting your sleep quality. So I'll often encourage people to just, you know, take an experiment and just try for two weeks. Okay, what happens if I taper down my caffeine? Whatever you do, don't go cold turkey if you drink a lot of caffeine because you will tend to get this uh, reaction, um, this rebound effect where you probably uh, don't sleep terribly well um, when you initially and you get headaches and all sorts of things. Where does alcohol fall into that? So alcohol, also not a great sleep aid, unfortunately. Um, The immediate effects of alcohol are to behave like a relaxant. So it sort of makes it feel like you're de-stressing. So people get tricked into thinking, oh yeah, it's great for my sleep. Um, And quite a lot of alcohol can almost put you quite quickly into a deep sleep or what looks like like deep Like the nightcap, quote unquote, yeah. But that sleep that you're getting into, that's sedation and that's not sleep. And it doesn't have the same restorative value. The other thing alcohol mm-hmm. can do is to push your circadian rhythm back. You know, we've all been to a party feeling a little bit tired and then you have a few drinks and it's like a second wind. And, and right. it's partly the effect of actually your body clock being pushed back. But that means you feel wretched in the morning. And <laughs> the more, you, more you've drunk because it disrupts your REM sleep as well, you're a bit irritable, emotional. You probably haven't um, 
got great memory recall either. So what tends to happen, what can often happen in a chronic sleep problem is that it's not actually the initial stress that causes a long-term sleep problem. Everybody has periods of stress in their lives. But what can cause the insomnia is the way that you react, that you cope. And some of these coping mechanisms are really unhelpful. Mm. And one of the most unhelpful is alcohol. Interesting. So if you, okay. you get into that pattern of relying on alcohol to help you sleep, but then your sleep is rubbish. So then you reach for caffeine to try and keep you going through the day, which makes you more activated. So what right. do you do at night? Well, I need more alcohol. And unfortunately, Co- coffee get- to wine. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And and so I think you, you can probably get away with it in your 20s, but maybe <laughs> not past that, because right. the quality of your sleep is just so disrupted. Which segues us right into stress, right? Like right. So, if, so if, let's, I think of, let's address of my, that. Yeah. yeah, of my three systems, I think it's probably the most important. And I think that uh, you know, a global pandemic is a really good example of how you know nobody's changed their nutrition probably not that much there have been some changes to circadian rhythms from people who used to go get up and go to work and now they're not Mm -hmm. no longer doing that so they have lost a bit of routine but probably the biggest change is around uncertainty and just this I I mean I noticed it myself always been a really good sleeper and then I started to wake up in the early hours of the morning I was like what's what's going on here then you know I haven't changed my (laughs) my sleep hygiene and uh, it was so interesting I was like wow my my brain is is waking me up making me feel anxious even though I don't feel personally under threat but it's just this whole context about what's going on another thing of course actually a lot of people started to use their uh, phones a lot more and to look at the news check the news more regularly and so probably that increased exposure to the blue light probably didn't help either but I think it was really just amplifying this feeling of being out of control. I've often wondered if the if the screen thing and and you can clarify that is is it the is it the blue light as much as what you're doing on your phone? I, you know I mean? Yeah, and it, it varies for different people. Some people are because you can have your blue light glasses light. on, but yep. if you are reading the news, I don't care what your 100%. blue light glasses are. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. And and if you use your phone for work, you know, there's a bit of your brain that's going, "Oh, shall I just check that work email?" And we yeah. know that it's much more relaxing to read an old-fashioned paper book, which doesn't have the temptation to click out, you know, hyperlinks here and hyperlink. There's this kind of cognitive cost in even deciding not to click on another app or something so you know reading a book uh, if we're coming on to stress reduction uh, strategies reading a book before bed is probably one of the best cheapest most reliable ways to actually just help yourself wind down think about something which is a bit a bit different uh, not expensive um but i guess for for women who have had chronic sleep problems, they're probably listening to this going, God, I always read a book and I always have terrible sleep problems. Right. <laughs> um, so it, it is not always as simple as, as simply reading. But if you think about that, being on this almost this treadmill all day that you're kind of cranking along and and people are busy and they're getting stuff done almost the more active your mind has been during the day the longer it's going to take to wind down at night Mm -hmm. so you Mm -hmm. might find you sleep really well on holiday when you're not putting yourself under a lot of pressure but actually in a normal working week things start to get on top of you so it's much more important the busier you are that you kind of leave yourself a bit of a gap gap to wind down to slow things down anybody who 
uh, as a parent will probably have done a fabulous job with their kids in introducing a wind down routine. And there's various reasons why that works. One is just that sense of predictability. You know what's going to happen. You know at this time you're going to have a bath, then you're going to brush your teeth, <laughs> then you're going to have a book, and then I will say goodnight. And right. if you repeat that time and time again, you know, the kids kind of learn to accept it. And it's because of that that predictability, that sense of safety. What you really mm-hmm. want before you go to bed is to feel safe and relaxed and like it's okay to get into a deep sleep. Um, so, well, we want to feel that too, though, right? <laughs> ab- absolutely. Right. So as adults, we often forget about that. And we almost think, oh, you know, that's something for kids. But, but by having a bedtime routine, and it doesn't have to involve reading a story, lots of people find actually listening to audiobooks can be helpful, meditation, having a warm bath, maybe doing some gentle stretching, yoga, so long as it's not too kind of activating. Um, I don't have an issue with like watching TV, that's fine, watching a movie, but probably just not, you know, uh, Game of Thrones, something super violent <laughs> might, might get you going. But everybody has a different right. reaction to different movies. So ideally, it's something nice and relaxing. Excellent. Let's move a little bit because we have talked about the sleep stages here and there, but not really talked about the sleep stages. So why don't, you know, everybody has heard about light sleep, REM sleep. Like what, what are those stages? We cycle through them. How are they important? I'm glad you asked. So we've probably got four sleep stages. Um, Sleep scientists keep changing their mind about four or five, but let's say four. Uh, They don't have a lot of imagination. So the first three are named stage one, two, and three. And then there's a fourth stage, which is called REM or rapid eye movement sleep. So Mm -hmm. start with stage one. Uh, If you're listening to this before you fall asleep, uh, you might already be in stage one sleep. It's where your consciousness just starts to kind of separate. um, And it's the lightest stage of sleep people often get that sensation of falling like yes. a hypnic jerk because part of their brain goes into sleep before the other part um, but it doesn't usually last very long it's very easy to rouse someone um, from stage one sleep spend a lot of my meetings in stage one sleep I think uh, stage two sleep is where you're you're kind of properly asleep to an observer your heart rate your breathing rate is starting to slow down and some interesting stuff is starting to happen in your brain you're starting to get these sleep spindles little jaggedy uh, types of electrical activity which are associated with memory consolidation particularly important in sport for learning new skills um, usually we spend about half of our night in stage two sleep but it's still termed a lighter phase of sleep that's so interesting because I, I think stage two gets a slight a, a short yeah nobody (laughs) talks about stage two but it's pretty important Uh, we want lots of it um the one people get excited about usually is stage three sleep so this is slow wave sleep and what happens Mm -hmm. when you look at the electrical signatures in the brain instead of being all jaggedy and kind of all over the place the brain sort of starts to act in harmony and you kind of get these pulses of slow wave activity. Um, people showed it on uh, MRI scan recently, it's beautiful. And what is happening, lots of things are happening, but one of them is memory consolidation. So we know that short-term memories are being moved into your long-term memory banks. Mm. We also know it's important for detoxifying the brain so you get this greater circulation of cerebrospinal fluid and it kind of sucks out these nasty uh, dementia inducing proteins beta amyloid well, and tau the glymphatic system 
Yeah, so it's, it yeah. helps it helps us to cleanse the brain. So there's there's evidence that even for healthy people, if you compress your sleep, there's this greater buildup of these toxic proteins. And so there's lots of research at the moment looking at actually if we try and promote greater deep sleep, could that be uh, protective against cognitive decline? At the moment, most of it's most of the research is from from animal studies and observational studies, but it's, it seems quite promising that actually if we can improve deep sleep, potentially we can help to protect the brain longer term. And is that just, also when you're repairing your, I don't mean to interrupt, like no. the brain is taking out the trash, is it also when you're repairing your muscles and stuff or is that happening? Yes, yes. Okay. That's when okay. um, immune, that's when your immune system is doing a lot of repair work. You're producing okay. growth hormone. So yes. really important for repair of muscles, also cancer prevention. You know, your, your brain's doing, a, not just your brain, but your whole body is kind of going into repair mode. Interesting, and okay. Unfortunately, as we get older, whether you're in menopause or not, you get less deep sleep. So the pattern as you get older, you tend to have, uh, it takes longer to fall asleep. And also you spend less of your time in slow wave sleep. But that's not all. We've got REM sleep as well. So typically you've gone one, two, three, deep into the deepest depths of sleep. And then you swing back out again after about an hour and a half of sleep. Usually um, you'll get into your first REM, uh, rapid eye movement part of sleep and this is when your eyes move rapidly from side to side but really only your breathing muscles and your eyes are active the rest of your body is temporarily paralyzed which people think maybe to stop you acting out your dreams because this is usually associated with dreaming and what we also know is that you tend to get more vivid dreams in experiences of, of, of stress and that's again one of the things that has come out during the pandemic that lots of people have noticed more vivid dreaming and it seems to be really important for emotional control emotional balance as we're kind of almost going through memories from the day and working out what are we going to keep and what are we going to lose so REM sleep is actually equally important for memory as it is for forgetting because we only have so much capacity to learn stuff and so actually it's it's one of the useful parts of sleep to forget fascinating so how does that fall into that whole beautiful orchestra and architecture how does that fall into a night's sleep like if you if you are shortchanging yourself in the morning i'm hearing maybe you're you're shortchanging your rem sleep like is that Okay. Yes, more yeah. than likely. Yeah, so um, ideally, if we have a nice long seven hour, seven to nine hours of sleep, then we're probably going to have five sleep cycles maybe in that. And they're all a little bit different. So you tend to get more deep sleep in the first part of the night. So you're less likely to get woken up. Whereas in the second part of the night, you spend more state, more time in the lighter stages of sleep. And you're more likely to wake up from REM sleep. So if you wake up from REM, roughly 70% of the time, you'll remember your dreams. And so one of the reasons people have probably reported more dreams is actually simply that they're waking up naturally because they don't have to jump out of bed and go to work. Uh, rather than being wake up and up by an alarm, which might wake them up in another stage of sleep. I have read many times that ideally you shouldn't have to use an alarm. Is that, do you do? So that kind of comes down to circadian rhythms again. So if you have a mm -hmm. really strong circadian rhythm where you are routinely waking up at the same time, yeah, it's more than likely that if you've had enough sleep, you will wake up naturally. And so, yeah, it's usually a sign of healthy sleep that you're able to wake up without an alarm. Got you. 
I have, I must say personally, I have not woken up to an alarm in 20 years or so, even if I set it. And even if I go, even if we're dancing the night away and we get in at three, I, my eyes pop open at 6.30 to 7, no matter what. That does, suggest, that suggests a really healthy circadian rhythm. And I think it's great if you get up because even if you've had a really terrible night of sleep, you know, the temptation is either to lie in or just go right. back to bed, bed in later. And um, it just just messes with that rhythm. And it's yeah. going to be so I much feel better to wake if I up the next just day. Get up. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people, uh, particularly when they first start out at work, you know, they'll um, go out a lot during the week, but or at the weekend, and they build up this sleep debt. And right. sleep debt is insidious. You know, um, your lack of sleep doesn't just affect you the next day. It can actually build up over weeks mm-hmm. and even months. And it can cause this sort of subtle deterioration in performance that's not going to be paid back after a single night of sleep. We do know that, you know, in terms of athletic performance, just one night of poor sleep, it takes at least two or three nights to kind of pay that back. Although let's let I don't want to make people uh, like panic and get upset. If you do not, if you wake up every every hour on the hour the night before your marathon, you're going to be okay. <laughs> I 100 percent with agree with okay. you. And I guess yeah, I, what, what I'm saying there, I suppose, trust me is, on that. No, you're going to be you're, okay. You're absolutely right. And there's plenty of stories of Olympians who've had a terrible night's sleep and have gone on to you know give the performance of their lives. I think the difference is if you don't work to overcome it. So if you were just relying on incidental performance, if you track somebody's reaction time over a couple of weeks when they're only getting six hours of sleep, their performance will decline. But that doesn't allow for the fact that actually if you've got an important competition, your adrenaline, your cortisol is probably going to override that natural deterioration in performance. So yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. You know, there's over time we're talking about the ideals here you know totally and i always say like that the week going into your your big event sleep 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 but if you're not sleeping great the night before because of your nerves and you have to pee 12 times then don't stress (laughs) yeah and use that time you know I, i think if you do wake up there's a number of strategies you can use but one of them is is positive visualization i don't know if you mm. probably use that you know see yourself crossing the finish line see yourself on the last time that you did a similar event when you were actually in flow and you were loving it and just repeat that you know i love to go windsurfing in that moment before i go to sleep which just takes me to a happy place and it's about evoking those emotions of positivity and optimism and those are going to just quash some of that cortisol because don't forget that when you wake up in the middle of the night you've probably been woken up by you know stress response light sleep and your amygdala is going wild you know it's sensing threats everywhere and if i was to ask you what you're thinking about probably be utterly irrational you know you might be worrying about anything loads of thoughts buzzing away in your mind because your prefrontal cortex which controls your logic um, strategic thinking all the sensible goal-directed stuff that you're very good at between 9 and 5 p.m that's offline you're thinking like a, an animal under threat when you wake up in the middle of the night. Right, right. Yes, so yes, you are. Very often, it's no good trying to reason with yourself and tell yourself that, you know, that is not a sensible thought. You're not going to listen. So one of the best strategies is distraction. So, yep, do some positive visualization or a breathing technique. Any old breathing technique will, will like, work. I heard this, like, I don't even remember the numbers. Uh 
It was, okay. so, it was like it was like four, seven, eight. I can't even remember what I was supposed to snake <laughs> breathing. I've heard all so these there's, there's like counting flipes. sheep. I mean, is that where counting sheep comes from? Is just distraction? Yeah, although there was a study that suggested that counting sheep was too distracting. Um, people, I don't know, get wind up about what the sheep look like. I'm not sure. But yeah, whether it's five, seven, eight, or there's box breathing, which is kind of four in, pause for four, four out, pause for four. That's a popular one. I personally am a proponent of one, two breathing so that you don't forget the uh, numbers. You're not laying there stressed out. What was well, the numbers? Well, also, because when I was waking up in the middle of the night, kind of post-COVID, um, I I was thinking five breathing in for five I can't do that I'm panicked (laughs) but if you start with one and you just breathe in deeply through your nose into your belly Mm -hmm. for one pause and breathe out for two through the nostrils or through your your lips honestly doesn't matter I find it easier through my mouth because I kind of like it makes me believe that I'm breathing and it's really important to be kind of conscious about what you're doing but in for one out for two and once that feels easy you can kind of add on to it so then you breathe in for two and out for three and the only important part is that you're just breathing out for a little bit longer than you breathe in and that sends a really strong message from your diaphragm to your brain that you are in control because Mm. if you were running from a lion you would either be frozen and stopping breathing completely or you would be fighting or fleeing for your life and you'd be panting and you'd be kind of all over the place so just by taking control of your breathing don't worry about the numbers but just control it slow it down a little bit and the more you practice the easier it gets is that parasympathetic? Are you activating like rest and digest with that? Exactly. So you're tricking the okay. brain. You're flipping from fight or flight into rest or digest, which is what you need in order to sleep well and to kind of quash that cortisol and get back. You should do a sleep, sleep app. Like when you were just talking there, I'm like, I would love your voice. <laughs> just to push a thing. Okay, breathe. <laughs> like, there is a, there's a little video on my uh, Instagram where you can, I, will, I go through the exercise. It only takes two minutes, but you can, you can find that. We'll put those um, in the show notes because I'm seriously, that was awesome. Um, I want to talk. I want to talk about a couple things. I want to talk yep. supplements. I want to talk tracking. And then I want to talk sleep and performance before we, before we let you go. I know these are giant topics. But I, <laughs> I'll do my I best. W- <laughs> I wear an aura ring. Like, I, and I, I love it, actually. Um, because it's amazing how, it, how you can actually see like, these stages. And I remember dreaming. I'll be like, I was dreaming. That tells me I was an REM. And that is correct. And that's when I got up to pee. But I, I sometimes worry, I get a lot of questions about, from women about like the best sleep trackers. And, this, and I know some people that, that they become counterproductive because these overachieving people get really stressed out that their sleep apps are going to tell them that, do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it becomes another Absolutely. thing to achieve. <laughs> and I worry yep. about that. <laughs> yeah. And if you're someone that gets so worried that they actually wake up during the night to tra- check what the sleep tracker says, then you know that it's <laughs> gone too far. And, and it is, you know, if you're finding it useful and you're like, oh, I tracked my sleep for a week. And do you know what? It wasn't as bad as I thought. That is probably one of the most common things that happens. The other thing is that people go, oh, I didn't realize that my sleep patterns were so haphazard. And I think it's brilliant to have a low effort way to track that because actually one of the most useful things is to keep that sort of routine going having said that you don't need an expensive piece of kit what we do know is that the most important thing about your sleep is your perception of it so i mentioned earlier that 
scientists recommend on average that adults need seven to nine hours sleep. But that is an average. And who's average? I mean, probably the vast majority of the population are going to be happy with seven to nine hours sleep. But even when the recommendations came out, they acknowledged that six hours may be appropriate, 10 hours may be appropriate. If you're an athlete and you're putting a lot of time into training, it would not at all be unusual to have eight hours sleep overnight, another couple of hours during the day. You know, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Elliot Kipchoge, when he broke the uh, two-hour marathon record, he was getting 10 hours of sleep a day because of the intensity oh, yeah. of that training. LeBron so, sleeps like 12 hours of sleep a night. Like he's a so, giant human being, so I'm sure he so needs a lot of repair. You know, yeah. if you're a healthy athlete, then don't try and, and cut your sleep down to seven hours to fit more in the day. If you're still sleepy, experiment with more sleep. But one of the best things you can do is simply with a pen and paper kind of diary, just write down how much sleep you're getting, perhaps what your training intensity is, what your mood is, and have a look to see whether those things correlate because obviously sleep and mental health are absolutely intertwined and either if your sleep goes down or your mood goes down something's not right then looking at your sleep and recovery times should be helpful perfect perfect so what about some of these supplements you know i mean there's a million of them um Many people in our audience are fans of adaptogens. Dr. Stacey Sims talks a lot about them and, you know, that, that, that trickles down into the audience. And th- those, are just, those are just about stress, as far as my understanding is. But then you, you get a lot of people asking, what about melatonin? What about NyQuil sleep? What about Tylenol? You know, all these different things. I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on any of supplements for sleep? I guess broad brush as a scientist you know you look at the evidence and go okay what's the weight of evidence what is the best solution for insomnia and far and away over the last 30 years every review that has come out has said the best most consistent solution for solving insomnia is an approach called cbt for insomnia so cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and everything that i've said today around sleep education and reducing stress these are all tools from this toolkit that is cbt for insomnia And the good news is now that actually you can access a lot of CBT for insomnia online. There are books. Um, I think the VA in the US actually has free apps like Insomnia Coach, which is a CBTI based tool. So there was a I did look up um, just about CBTI in, in menopause and it was really interesting. So there was a study that came out in 2018, which looked at six different solutions for women who had Um, hot flushes and going through menopause and what they found was they compared CBTI with uh, exercise or a couple of antidepressants so venlafaxine and escitalopram and also low-dose estradiol and omega-3 fatty acids so all of those things were compared in different so hormone replacement therapy or menopause hormone therapy and antidepressants uh, exercise and what was the last one omega-3 fatty acids okay okay And what they found was that CBTI was the most effective and actually twice as effective as any of the other so-called solutions for reducing insomnia sort of back to remission. So that seems to be... So this was what was interesting. CBTI did not reduce the number of hot flashes, hot flushes. Sorry, we mm-hmm. call them flushes. You're I know, flushes. I know. We call them flashes. <laughs> and yeah. so it didn't, it didn't change that, but it changed women's response to them. And by that, I mean, instead of waking up going, oh my God, the big menop- menopause predator is out to get me. When you do CBTI, you just learn that 
A, waking up during the night is kind of natural. So in between all of those sleep cycles, there's potential for a short period of wakefulness. And when you're younger, you don't tend to notice it. You just roll over and go back to sleep. But as we get older and we get more of these periods of wakefulness, there's more potential to wake up. And obviously when you're experiencing night sweats, you're more likely to wake up, but it's not one-to-one. It's not that every hot flush or night sweat that you definitely wake up and what cbti this kind of cognitive behavioral approach does is to stop you reacting so negatively to them so women said they had the same number uh, of the hot flashes but they still reported that their sleep quality was improved they had more energy during the day so all of those important outcomes even though it didn't actually change the hormonal symptoms so other studies obviously found that actually taking hormone replacement therapy does if you've experienced hot flushes it does tend to reduce those symptoms and it can also help with your energy during the day so specifically the insomnia outcome in terms of i'm dissatisfied with my sleep cbti seems to be the most reliable thing Um, But obviously anything that you're doing to reduce the symptoms that wake you up at night can also help with sleep quality. So I would just say do the lot, you know, um, do some do some reading, some research on CBTI, but also do what you can to reduce the symptoms. Right. And to be clear, much of what we have talked about as far as like how to work with your circadian rhythm, how to get that sleep pressure, that's all encompassing in that CBTI. Is that what you, you're yeah, saying? Yeah, I'd say it's all in there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And I think Excellent. the nice thing is the the reason that I don't, I'm not going to separate out my advice uh, for those people with insomnia and those people who don't is that everything that I've said should help everyone to improve their sleep. It's not just if you have insomnia. I think a couple of things which are specifically for a chronic sleep problem. So it, in order to be sort of clinically diagnosed with insomnia, you would be waking up at, and having very poor sleep three hours, uh, sorry, for at least three nights a week for three months or more, despite adequate opportunity for sleep. So, you know, if you're living under a flight path, you probably didn't have an adequate opportunity. It's not insomnia, you just need to move house. But if <laughs> given all things uh, being equal, then insomnia is a chronic sleep disorder. And so the only things that I haven't talked about that could help you to kind of tackle that would be this idea of sleep restriction therapy. I nodded to it earlier. This is the idea of actually reducing your time in bed in order to consolidate your sleep. So let's just take someone. um, Okay, what what time typically would you go to bed? If you don't, I try to be in bed. I like to be lights out. By 10.30. Like that is Perfect. my... Yeah. Okay, so we got... That's your bedtime, 10.30. And then what about your wake time? 6.30. Or in terms of time out of bed. Is, is that when you would get out of bed? Or would you... I, I, I get up around 6.30 and, and I, eh, I... I read a little bit in the morning, but I'm, I'm usually out of bed by 7. Okay, so these are all very good sleep patterns. So we've got about 8 or 8.5 eight half, half hours in bed. Yeah. Now, if you think to a night when, um, and hopefully you're not in this place at the moment, I don't know, but a bad night's sleep, then how I had many... a couple a couple of weeks okay. ago, and I'll tell you, and I, I, I didn't want to make this personal, but it really bothered me because I yeah. always fall asleep. I had about three nights in the past couple of weeks that... I, w- I went went to everything pretty much the same, and I felt like I never fell, like I couldn't fall. I was I was laying there. I'm c- doing all the things I know to do, breathing, can't like, and it literally took 
two and a half hours for me to fall. You know, and then I get, I get lots of deep sleep. Like once I fell, I got lots of deep sleep. That the only thing, Sophie, that I did differently is we've had a lot of snow here, and I ride my bike all the time. I ride my bike in the snow. I ride, I, you know, sometimes I ride inside, and I'm like, I don't feel like riding on my trainer. I'm just going to go snowshoeing. I did different things, and that is the only variable that changed. And then, honest to God, and I don't know if this is psychosomatic, and I don't care. I took out my fat bike and I rode and I slept like a baby. And I was like, okay. And I could feel my brain changing while I was riding. And maybe this is because of a lunatic who has been on my wheels 700 hours a year for 20 years. But, like, it seemed to make a huge difference. So, so yeah, maybe that was your personal stressor was actually that I, you felt in some way that you hadn't done enough that day or something. I, I'm or not just sure. Like, I was missing something. I don't know. It was weird. Because I don't ever have trouble uh, falling asleep. But we, we all do, you know. And yeah. If the odd occasional poor night of sleep every now and again, do not let that get on top of you. You know, never right. judge your sleep patterns by one night. But so if you don't go to bed the, the next course, night all stressed up that it's going to no. happen again. And whatever you do, don't go to bed early the next night to try and make up for it. Because what will happen if you just stick to the same pattern is the following night, you're going to be really tired. And by being really tired, you're going to be more likely to sleep through the night. Which is why but, you're talking about that compressed sleep. Yeah, so so the idea with sleep um, uh, sleep restriction therapy or sleep compression is that this is for people who maybe spend, like you, maybe eight and a half hours in bed, perhaps more, but actually they're only sleeping for five or six. And some women will say even less. And so if you work out your sleep efficiency, and some of these um, apps will do it for you, but it's the proportion of time in bed that you've spent asleep. So for you, normally it might be 80 or 90%, but on a night that actually you only slept for four or five hours, your sleep efficiency would be closer to 50%. So if your sleep efficiency routinely is less than 85%, then you might benefit from compressing your sleep window. And all this means is, and I would usually just start with going to bed an hour later or getting up an hour earlier. Some people will be a bit more gung-ho about it and compress by a couple of hours at a time, but I think that can also be quite anxiety-provoking. <laughs> so if you right. just kind of be subtle, um, compress your window in bed by at least an hour and try and maintain that pattern for two weeks. What mm -hmm. will happen is that you will feel more tired. <laughs> and within two weeks, within two weeks, I would be very surprised if you didn't start sleeping better through the night. The other ingredient to make sleep restriction therapy work is that actually if you wake up and you can't fall back to sleep, so your mind's going crazy, you're feeling panicked, then get out of bed get up, get out of bed, do something else. I wouldn't necessarily recommend going on your bike because it's just going to make it harder to fall asleep for most people. But right, since right. that's where you spend most of your time, you know, maybe that that's fine. But you want to do something that's ideally a little bit relaxing, reading a book, Go listening read to somewhere music, else listening, to, listening to this podcast until your eyelids start to feel heavy, you start to feel sleepy again, and then get back into bed. Because what can happen over time is that you get into this pattern where you start to associate your bed as being the place that you can't sleep and that's fatal and a lot of people come to me and say well I don't think I have a sleep problem you know I can I can sleep on a train um, or I can sleep waiting for the bus but I can't actually sleep in my own bed and so to break that potential negative cycle you want to just 
keep your bed for sleeping. Um, so that's sleep restriction therapy. And, and ideally, after you've compressed it a bit, once you're sleeping through the night, you start to gradually increase it again. But you might actually find that you don't need quite as much sleep as you thought. You know, if a lot of people will read on the internet, I know I need at least eight hours, so they'll try and protect that eight hours, but they might not be eight hour sleepers. They might be seven hour sleepers, and that might be just fine. And we do right, tend right, to need such an a little, message. yeah, we tend to need a little bit less sleep as we get older. So actually the recommendation over the age of 65 is to, be, to get between seven and eight hours of sleep because you can oversleep. We don't quite know why that causes a problem, but it might be an indicator that your health is, is going wrong in some other way that people are sleeping for longer. Yeah, that, that, that's what I've always what I've always thought. Let's close this up with the rewards of sleep and performance because we, we, we talked about that a little bit, but there's been such really interesting studies where they've, you know, extended sleep for three nights and like the basketball players, like they perform better. I know when I was training for Ironman, I slept like a corpse, you know, like like sometimes for 11 hours. Like it, it, there's definitely something to it. And, and I know you've had your own experience with sleep deprivation and uh, maybe rock climbing. I don't know how you're supportive. So yeah, talk not, a little bit about... I'm definitely not pin, pin up child for uh, good sleep or I wasn't when I started my business three years ago. The reason that I that I did it and I tried to become a bit of a sleep evangelist is because I experienced the uh, negative effects of sleep loss. So I was getting into rock climbing. I happened to go climbing on a day where I'd been building up considerable sleep debt. I worked for a startup. I worked very long hours. Oh did boy, quite a lot of yeah. travel. And on that particular day, my flight had been delayed and I probably actually only had about three or four hours sleep, but I'd promised some friends that I would pick them up and go climbing. So not, not only did I get up after very little sleep, I was also driving a car. And then I got to the, uh, the cliff and um, at 5 p.m. in the evening, my body clock thought it was 7 p.m. And it was I'm 5 p.m. Early. So it was yeah. 5 p.m. my time, but my body clock was on 7 p.m. time. And I made a number of really stupid decisions. The person I was climbing with and the experience that we had had together, you know, I was reckless. And this can happen when you're sleep deprived. You make decisions based on impulse and thinking it's going to be okay than really rationally strategically thinking it through and so on that particular day I had a very nasty fall which could have been avoided I was helicoptered off the cliff and <gasps> that is I, a very nasty fall it was can um, you tell us a little bit about what happened I badly fractured and dislocated my talus bone in my ankle which is kind of the the big bone in the middle that holds everything together it also has were you a on the wall yeah, so I, I, I was sport climbing where you take up the rope with you and it's generally yes. fairly safe. You clip rope into bolts in the wall, mm -hmm. but there's mm -hmm. a point between the bolts where you have to decide whether you're going to carry on. And if you fall when you haven't clipped in the rope, when you're a meter or two above, which is where I was, um, you can then, when you fall, if your partner isn't in tune with you you can get catapulted into the rock so that's what happened to me so my ankle went went first at a jaggedy way um and <laughs> the reason i kind of mention this is because i now have three titanium pins in my ankle to remind me not to deprive myself of sleep and at the time i'd been researching sleep i'd even been talking about sleep but i hadn't been applying what i'd learned to my own life 
And I think it's so easy. None of us ever do that. (laughs) It's so easy to learn about this stuff and read about it. And and there'll be people who are listening who know all this stuff, but they're still not changing their behavior. So I just implore you to experiment. I'm not saying that you have to protect your sleep every night, but do an experiment for two weeks. Maybe go to bed a little earlier or try one of the other things that we've spoken about. Switch your phone off an hour before bed and see what a difference that it makes to you. Because it could be that there's a whole nother level of performance that you haven't unlocked yet because Mm. you're actually in a chronic state of sleep deprivation. And if you're able to recover better, your alertness improves, your mood improves, your immune health, um, protection from infection, uh, inflammation, pain management, thermoregulation, all of these things potentially could improve. So, you know, you've got very little to lose. Right. It keeps the menopause monster at bay, so to speak. <laughs> you can tame the beast, tame the menopause beast, and it won't feel like a beast. Um, one of the reasons that I absolutely love this podcast is I think that by giving people information, you're giving them options and you're putting them in control and, and it's not so scary anymore. And I think the, very often the more you know, the less uncontrollable, the more predictable it gets and the less stressful it, it all is. And I appreciate, I really appreciate your, your scope of advice because I think very often, and I'm, I'm guilty having been a, you know, a writer where they're like, oh, you, you know, write 150 words on getting people to sleep. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and, and it just, so people, the, the, the problem is people take that and then they don't see all those other things that they can do. It's just like, okay, shut off the screens, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they don't see like, oh, maybe I, I need to go to bed later, actually. Like, that, you know, they, that never enters yeah. the conversation. And I'm, I'm really and it, aware, I, I kind of dodged a lot of those questions on supplements. And that's not because supplements and nutrition are irrelevant. It's really simply because when you look at the weight of evidence, there's like this great stack of evidence behind CBTI. And there's a few tiny studies which have really looked at nutrition in a really good way. And some of the largest have actually been the ones that just tell you things that you already knew. Like actually, if you have a generally healthy diet with a good balanced, lots of fresh foods, Um, you're much less likely to suffer from nutritional deficiencies, and surprisingly enough, your sleep is better. Whereas if you have a diet which is very high in processed foods, um, high in saturated fat, high in sugar in particular, that spikes your cortisol, it leads to more disrupted sleep. Um, Individual supplements, typically there's just not great evidence yet, and I'm sure that there will be more emerging. But if you want to play it safe, it's sort of play it safe with the cognitive and behavioral aspects and just have a, you know, multivitamin, have a general kind of healthy, balanced diet, and that's going to protect your sleep. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with psychologist Dr. Lisa Lewis. Lisa has a background in sport and exercise psychology and is particularly well-versed in the topic of motivation. So if you're wondering where your mojo went since hitting menopause, Lisa can help you find it and get back on track. I really loved talking to her. We had a great discussion. So I will see you next week for that one. And until then, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager, 
The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.